We're in a series in Luke's Gospel, and we're in chapter 14 of that series. So I don't know if you're thinking this is taking a long time to get through, maybe you're thinking that, or you're thinking this is flying by. My observations have been, in terms of what we need to know about Jesus, in terms of what we need to know for salvation, Luke's pretty much told us everything we need to know, by about chapter 11, actually. And the the period of time I think we're in now, I think Luke's got a slightly different objective. He's trying to tell us, he's not as preoccupied with telling us stuff that Jesus did. He wants us to think about what we already know. There's a group of stories, really, from chapter 12 through to about chapter 14, where we come into contact with some new issues, where where to look at death and judgment and the bigger picture, and the end game, and consequences for our actions. We begin to see ourselves in the bigger story. So we look at, there's a few stories that you could look at where you're caused, because Luke is a very clever writer, to look at the story through different people's eyes, to, to absorb Jesus' teaching through different people's eyes, and see yourselves in the big story, and actually to cause yourselves, in light of that, to try and live a bit differently. I want us to be introspective today. I'm hoping I've got that word right. I think I know what it means. I want us to be self-reflecting. I want us to, to, really, to really think deeply about how we live today, what's important to us today. We're human beings, and we don't do this, do we? We think about the next five minutes. We're, we're drawn by what, whoever shouts loudest. I want us to, be, to, to take a second, as it were. And we don't do this unless we have a car crash or unless we have a health scare. Or perhaps we go on holiday and have a glass of red wine and look up at the stars for five minutes. I want us to be reflective. Luke, I think, is asking us to see ourselves in the bigger picture. It's another awkward story. So I don't know if they could put the text up on the screen. Um, Chapter 14 and verse 1, if you're following it along on your phone or something like that, you don't need to. It's going to be magically up on the screen. There you go. They're a brilliant team at the back. Uh, It's another awkward story. Luke repeating a familiar story. Jesus is at the house of a Pharisee, of a religious leader, on the Sabbath day, and he heals a man. And in my, what must be a slightly older NIV, it said that he had dropsy. And in an even older version I read, it said that he was dropsical. That's the authorized version. I didn't really know what that meant. And in this, it's more helpful. He has, he has fluid, excess fluid. He's ill. And Jesus heals this man on the Sabbath. Jesus goes out of his way to heal this man on the Sabbath. If Luke was writing this book today, I think the executive editor would put his head over Luke's shoulder and say, you've mentioned this already. You've told us this stuff. This isn't going to make the cut of your final story. We're going to edit this out because in chapter 7, chapter 11, and a few others that I probably got them slightly wrong, you talk about this. You give us this exact same story. Why is this in again? Dr. Luke, and I don't want to spend too long on it because I've covered it twice in two of my sermons, and I'm sure you'll remember exactly what I said, so I won't need to repeat it, but Luke's put it in three or four times. I don't think he's done it because he's, he's run out of source material. We've, we've, we've observed when Paul introduced the topic of Luke, Luke has poured over this stuff. He's grabbed resources from everywhere. It's not like he's short of stuff to say. Luke's deliberately ignored the ed- editorial advice, and he's thought, no, I'm going to put it in again. Even if it means you shut the book because you're bored, you need to know. You need to know that compassion supersedes regimented rule-keeping in Jesus' kingdom. Don't get annoyed. Don't get annoyed at me for showing compassion on the Sabbath day. It's more important, justice, mercy, 
forgiveness. These are more important things. And Luke bashes us. Maybe he doesn't bash us. He repeats it, that message, again. As a word, I want you to, to, to stay in your heads as we go through this passage. It's awkwardness. This is the most awkward chapter I've ever read in the Bible. And I've not really read it with the intention of finding out how awkward it was. But there is awkward silence as Jesus, as an invited guest, raises awkward issues. This is awkwardness on Ricky Gervais levels. Has anyone seen The Office? Don't have to put your head up, hand up, head up. Can you put your head up? If you've seen The Office, you'll know what I mean. He almost uses the awkwardness as a tool in this, in this story. And how do, how do they respond? What is their response in the text? You might be familiar with the journey of the Pharisees up to this point, And their response has been different. They've, they've, uh, in, in early chapters, they wanted to kill Jesus. In other, in other chapters, they've, they've argued with him. They've strongly objected to him. And in this chapter, what does it say that they are? How do they receive this message? Have a look on the text. They are silenced. They have got nothing to say. I tried to stop and mull over this silence. What does this silence tell us? They reject Jesus, not because his miracle wasn't real, but it was because it didn't suit their purposes. Jesus heals this man in front of their eyes, as he's done so many times. He heals the man right in front of their eyes. And on this occasion, they're just, it's not that they're indifferent. I think it's bluntly obvious that this man is something special. The wisdom that pours from his lips, the way that he teaches, the miracles that he does, it's almost like, yeah, okay, we know that you're God, but we've got a different agenda now. We've kind of made our minds up about the way that we're going to go. And in this instance, they are silenced. I thought it was a helpful picture. Often, I've prayed that God would give us a sign. I've thought about somebody I know who I've wanted to be saved, and I've prayed, God, just something miraculous to show this person. And as I've reflected on this, I think God can work in that way. I think through miraculous signs, even today, God still works. God still shows the way. But there's a broader picture here for us to observe. Actually, these people in the Bible saw the signs. They saw them over and over again, and they didn't reject him on the grounds that the signs weren't good enough or that the miracles weren't real, or that the wisdom didn't point to him being God. They rejected him because they had other stuff to do. It's such a clear picture, I think, for us of the world. Often, God is rejected, and I wonder if this is you. You've just got other stuff to do. You've just got other stuff that seems more important. And Luke, I think, would point to the bigger picture of the kingdom and would draw our eyes away from the next five minutes and point us to consequence, to eternity, to living in light of God. So we move on to the next bit, um, verse 7 through 11. It's, it's already Ricky Gervais level awkwardness. And I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where it is that awkward and it's that painful. I, I, I want to break that silence. I don't enjoy that. I, I fill it with noise and try and speak into it and just say something, whatever comes into my head. And I think most people are like that. We don't enjoy the awkwardness. And yet Jesus, I think this is really interesting, you know, this room, this was a party. Jesus has silenced the party. And you'd think, is he going to counter this awkwardness? Is he going to want to put everybody at ease and tell them to eat their dinner? No, Jesus sees somebody walking in 
to take, to take the seat of honor, and he criticizes them as they walk in. Let's read it together. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. That was a bit Yorkshire. Humbled. <laughs> and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And Jesus says this as the people are coming in to do this very thing. They're, you can just imagine some guy in a big glamorous gown wandering up to take the seats of honor. And Jesus is giving him this rebuke. So just let's... I want to give you a bit of context so you can absorb the scene. The way that party invites worked in these times was that there was a two-stage invite. And I really like the laid-back way in which this goes out. There's just this general big, we're having a party. Just, and I love that. I think, I think that's how all parties should be announced. We're just, we're having a party. We're not going to tell you when. We're not going to tell you really what we're celebrating. We're not going to tell you anything else. We're just, we're having a party. And then on the day of the actual party... The servants go out from the house and tell people, you remember that party that we told you about that you said you were going to come to? It's today. I love, I, I think we should, we should in, the queen should take it upon herself to make it law today that we should have parties like that. Everybody would be so much more chilled out, wouldn't they? It would be much more of a way to do things. But this is what's happening. This is how people went to the, the parties in these times. Another thing that's worth knowing is that it's how people sat. It was often the case that you would sit in a big U. I'm not going to be dogmatic and say that's how everybody sat, but often, and as I've learned it, that's how people sat at these feasts. It would be a big U, and the seats of honor would be up here at this end of the U, and the seat of the servant would be over there at this end of the U, and as you can work your way down through a less honorable, probably a better way to describe that, less honorable seats as you go right the way through. And what Jesus observes is people coming in, sitting at this end, presuming to sit at this end. You'll have done something like that when you've been to a wedding. I would think. I have. When you go to weddings and you're early, I'm not often early. It's not often my fault, but I'm not often early. And you get to the wedding and you look round and somebody will say you can sit on the left or you sit on the right. And I'm thankful. That's, that's half the battle done. But then as you walk to the front, you see the, the family, the groom all sat there. And then as you're making your way to the front, you're having to work out the decision, maybe with your wife or your friends, how important am I? at this wedding. How well do I know this person? And then you see somebody you know. You see old Uncle John. You've not seen him for 10 years. And he's sat on the third row. And you're like, if he's sat on the third row, then I'm more important than him. So then you go and sit in front of him. And you kind of make this assumption as to how important you are, at least to the bride and groom. You've probably had something similar to that. And Jesus, as he's, as he's watching this scene, he's seeing the same thing unfold. And what he's observing is time and time again, party after party after party, people take it upon themselves to try and get right to the top seat. You don't see anybody who's like, I'm probably here. This is probably where I sit. Everybody, Jesus says, is trying to get up at the top table. Everybody is full of, and I want us to just observe this word for a second, pride. It's pride. Pride. Let's think about pride. It's one of these sins, I think, that we overlook. And as I'm speaking about it, I'm realizing that this is my big this is my biggie. I probably make a mess of other stuff too, but pride, you know, this is, it's horrible when you're the preacher and the message is 
for you. It's the worst kind of message to have to deliver. But pride, it's a sin, I think, that we overlook. When C.S. Lewis writes his book, Mere Christianity, he describes it as the great sin. We probably often overlook it, but it's often, often in the Bible, it's the catalyst for other sins. It's the thing that causes us to mess it up in other ways. Paul uses a word for it that's really helpful. He calls it physio, something like that. It's Greek. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. There's two, there's two words for it in the New Testament more often than not, hubris and physio. And there's, there's, there's an argument, and Joe touched on this a couple of weeks ago, in, in, in the church in Corinth, and essentially people are arguing about who's the most important. You can look it up for yourself. It's 1 Corinthians 4, 6 if you want some homework or anything like that. People are wrestling for authority. And Paul, Paul writes to them, and says, you know, this is, this is the, he doesn't even necessarily deal with the problem. He just says, Christ is the answer. That's the most important thing. But the real problem is your pride. You're all wanting to be top dog. And he uses this word physio, and the word physio is really helpful. It gives us a helpful picture. It's got this association with bellows, this idea of being over-inflated, like the person perhaps that was ill, that sort of idea, an infection that's, that's got bigger than it should and it's not overinflated in a nice way. It's overinflated in a horrible to look at way. It's unnaturally big. And this book's really helpful. So there's a couple of copies um, on the door. And I'm, I don't know whose they are, but I'm taking an executive decision and saying if you want to grab one, just take one. Maybe you've read it already. It's a great short book on pride and the effect of pride. And what Timothy Keller does in this book is, is say, look, the legacy of sin has meant that we are more proud than we used to be. If you read an older version of the Bible, instead of pride, the word there is puffed up. The translators have chosen to use this word puffed up. And just this idea that you are more inflated than is helpful for you to be. And in this state of overinflation, you constantly need filled up all the time. This pride, which I think systematically is within our society, just this legacy of sin. We're all a bit more puffed up than we should be, and we're all trying to keep up with the Joneses more and more, and all of this leads to more and more sin. C.S. Lewis described it like this. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or better looking or cleverer than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. I found that little quote helpful when we think about these people that Jesus observes going to this party who just have to sit slightly higher up than everybody else. It's the human sin of pride. We just need a bit more of something than everybody else, and it leads us down a sinful road. So what's Jesus' antidote to this pride? How does he say we should deal with it? It works on two levels, really. The first level is just quite a common sense, here's what, here's what you should do at a party kind of level. And the second level is parabolic. It's more godly. It's more theologically based. So the first level, Jesus just says, let me pass on some wisdom here. Let me give you some advice. When you go and take the seat up at the top of the table, there's only really one outcome from this. You leave yourself wide open to what? You leave yourself wide open to somebody 
pulling you down and you falling down. And probably some of the wisdom that he had in the back of his mind, Jesus, when he, when he said these words was Proverbs 25, 6 and 7. Do not exalt, exalt yourself in the king's presence and do not claim a place among great men. It is better for him to say to you, come up here, than for him to humiliate you before a nobleman. And another bit of advice, Proverbs 16, 18, and you'll know this phrase, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall, or as we've shortened it in the 21st century, pride comes before a fall. This, just this really general wisdom that Jesus is passing on to people. Don't assume too great a position, because in assuming too great a position, in acting with pride, you leave yourself vulnerable to a fall. Maybe what Jesus is observing is the trait that happens in parties today, often happens in parties today, doesn't it, where a celebrity party, the really cool celeb, Beckham perhaps or whatever, he won't come on time, that's not going to happen, is it? He's going to make an entrance, he's going to come a little bit later. What Jesus is observing here with these parties that didn't really have a start time, barely even had a date, is that people, the cool people, probably somebody cooler than you, is almost certainly going to come after. And you're going to be in the horrible position of the host having to ask you, humiliate you, and say, you need to go and sit down there because he's come. What Jesus says here is the wiser thing to do is to sit down there because then it leaves opportunity for the host to come over to you and say, by the way, my friend, can you come and sit up here? Which one of those two things looks better? To get moved down, to assume a higher position and have to be moved down, or to take a lower position and have the host move you up. That's the common sense part of it. But of course, this is Jesus talking. So there is a spiritual truth that underpins this. As he's teaching this, it's not just party advice. This is kingdom teaching. And it sits right at odds with everything that we get taught in the whole world. The world would really say, grab as high a seat as you can, hang on to it, don't let anybody shove you down. That's the best way to get ahead. That's the way to be truly exalted. Grab a good seat, fight for it, hang on to it. Jesus says, my kingdom values, the way to get right to the top is if you first take a lower seat. Why is that? Because then the host, God, God will exalt you. God will lift you up. And in terms of getting to the top, there's nobody can lift you higher for longer than him. Here's the advice of the parable. Let's be humble. Not for the sake of being humble, because God commands it. And eventually, in trusting him, we'll be exalted. What comes with that? What does it show the world when we leave? I mean, I guess people would observe people who are humble and dismiss them, actually. The world would probably, you probably get trampled on. You're probably leaving yourself a little bit open. You're making yourself a little bit vulnerable. But what does it look like in God's eyes? If you leave room, the only way that you can get lifted up is if God does it. That's what faith looks like. I think another thing that Jesus is saying, and it's really the, the energy behind this book, the freedom of self-forgetfulness, is that you don't have to do this anymore. How exhausting is it trying to keep up with the Joneses? How hard is that? How, how annoying is it when, when they get something new and you think, all right, they've, well, they've got that now, or whatever, whatever it is, and that this constant need for your pride to keep being filled. Jesus says, it doesn't have to be like this. Your security is in me. Your hope 
is in me. You can take the pressure off. You can take the humble seat and not feel bad. You can take the humble seat and know that I will lift you up at one point. And the awkwardness remains. We'll move on to the next story, verses 12 through 14. And you're kind of thinking that this awkwardness is going to subside at some point, right? This can't carry on. And it almost, if Ricky Gervais himself were to jump in on the scene and do a crazy dance, it couldn't get more awkward than this. Jesus says to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. And that's exactly who was at this party. If you do, they may invite you back, so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection. Jesus is advocating social suicide here, really, when you think about it. What's he saying? When you have a party, take the humble seat, sit, sit with the losers. Is that too harsh? And then if you're going to throw a party yourself, invite all the losers. This is, this is, is this, does this make any sense? And yet this is the advice that Jesus is giving. How we give is a reflection of who we are. Jesus identifies another flaw with the people at these parties. He says, you don't just, it looks like this party cost a lot. You could sit back and say, yeah, this cost a fortune. This is a great gift to the people of this community. But Jesus is saying, actually, you're, you're not in it for the gift. By the way you've set this up and the people you've invited, this works as more of an investment than a gift because these people are going to invite you back and actually your social standing is taking a jump. So this isn't a gift. This is a clever investment. It's one of the skills I think we learn in the playground. I think I talked about playground skills a couple of weeks ago, didn't I? We learn a lot in the playground. And one of the things that we learn is this idea that if you do something for somebody else, they're probably going to do it for you. And I think it's this skill we learn in the playground that I think is ingrained in our lives. As we grow to be adults, we realize this is part of the game. This is part of life. You need to help people out, and they will help you out. And as we grow up, we kind of end up looking for that, don't we? Have you ever, oh, well, have you ever flashed anybody out? Whenever, Jude will tell you this, whenever I flash anybody out when I'm driving my car, and, I, and they don't thank me, I'm outraged. And then I realize that my whole motivation, all I want is that cool moment where you go, you're all right. We're on the same page. Me and him, on the same page. That's all you're looking for. That's it. And when I let somebody out and they don't thank me, I'm like, look at that guy. Look at that idiot. And that's, that's what's going on in my head. And it's just all about the self-gratification. I give, and it's not a lot that I'm giving, but I give so that I can receive. It's the disease of human beings, I think. We just give and wait on receiving, especially when it's for people that we know in our family. It's like with me, a clock starts ticking in my head. I do a kind thing. And if somebody doesn't notice it, let's say I've done the dishes or something like that, there's been no compliments. I am inside, I'm like, I need to tell somebody that I've done a, you know, I've got to, and if it's, and if nobody notices, if it's just like dismissed or it's just taken for granted, I'm outraged. We, look, we do stuff so we can get stuff back. But what does this say about humanity that this is part of our, part of the way that we are, that we look for the best seats? And that we give so that we might receive. What does this say about us? It says that we trust ourselves and we don't trust God. Think about this. If it's possible to give something without needing anything in return, if you can manage to do that, it's a bit like placing a gift 
into the hands of God. If, no, if nobody sees it, nobody sees it at all, you do the kind thing, you don't get any glory for it, you don't get any glory for it whatsoever, there's only God, only God seeing it, only God can glorify it. That's the way to give, that's the Christian way to give. When we give needing to receive, and I'm not downgrading this, it's a good life skill, we show people a smart cookie. I'll probably look at my kids, observe them, see them learning this skill and think, good for you, you're going to be all right, you're a smart cookie. But when I see somebody giving with no need to receive, then I see God. When I see people giving, wanting to receive, I see a smart cookie. If it's my kids, I'm proud of them. When I see somebody giving with absolutely no need for re- to receive a gift back, then I think in doing that, you show the world, God, the best hospitality is given and not exchanged. So then uh, uh, verse 15, I don't know if that's on the text, there's kind of a somebody, somebody with probably my sensibilities tries to think, right, I'm going to try and break up this awkwardness. This party is too awkward. This is too painful. So it's kind of an interjection. Somebody says, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. It's almost like him saying, well, we're all God's people. We're all going to go to heaven. Let's just, let's calm down. Let's enjoy the food. And you kind of think when this moment comes in the party, perhaps Jesus will, will let up. But he doesn't. He pursues the awkwardness. Jesus replies, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, and listen to these excuses. I, I can give an excuse when it, come, when it needs to be given. Another one said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I've just got married, so I can't come. They are, and I think we're supposed to get this, they are amongst the most rubbish excuses you could ever imagine to give. I've, I've made some mistakes with buying property. I'm happy to admit it in my life. I've done, made a few slightly foolish decisions, but i am not done anything on this scale. This guy has gone out and bought land, and then he's gone out to check to see what it looks like. That, you know, I don't know much about buying property, but that is not the way around it works. You go and see the land first. We're supposed to see the ridiculous of this excuse, I think. We're supposed to see the error in it. The next guy, I've bought livestock, and I need to go and try them out. Again, same sort of idea, and I think especially at this time, if you're going to buy livestock, you go and check out the livestock first, and then you buy the livestock. You don't just buy the livestock and then go and check them after. And the last guy, I just think we presume that He's, not run, he's run out of excuses and he's just blamed his wife. He's just said, well, I've got a wife and I can't come. It's just three poor excuses. And we could do the sermon about those excuses. I've heard sermons about that. You could say, well, it's, um, you need to put God before your relationships, God before your work, and God before everything else. And that's, you know, that's a legitimate sermon. But I think, I think we're here supposed to see the ridiculousness. I think that's what stands out for me, the ridiculousness of not going to this feast. We're here to see that these aren't reasons for not going to a feast. These are just excuses for not going to a feast. That's all they are. They're excuses. This is a great banquet. It's a brilliant feast. Why would you not go? That's what Jesus is saying. There's great food there. These, in these times, times are hard. There's not food everywhere you turn. You can't just pop down the supermarket. This guy has put on a brilliant banquet and, you just, and you've known about it, you've been ready for it, you've been waiting for it, 
for years and years and years and years, and now it's come round and you've said, oh, I'm not going to go. You've just made an excuse. And this is the point Jesus is making, I think. It's just ridiculous not to go to the banquet, isn't it? And of course, this is a parable that speaks to us today. Really, must grieve our God that he has set up this feast, that he has prepared such a brilliant victory for us, that he has established everything, and nobody's going, or the word gets rejected. I guess we occupy the part, the role of these servants to a certain extent. What do we do with this information in the world that we live in? I guess some of us will be Christians, and we go out and we try and spread this word, don't we? We try and share this message, and when it when it gets knocked back, when people ignore it, where does it leave us? What do we do with a parable like this? Maybe you've got the same reaction as me sometimes. I'm kind of thinking, as, as it gets knocked back, in my, in my weaker moments, in my more sinful moments, I might say something like, and I've heard people say things like, well, they were never going to get saved anyway. We kind of have this attitude, we can have this attitude as Christians where when God's word is rejected, we kind of are a bit holier than that, and we think, yeah, I've got it. I've had, I've had the teaching, and I've got it, and I get it. But we've not got the compassion on the people, perhaps, who don't have it. And I kind of think to myself, I want to get my Christian pipe and slippers out, put my feet up, find a nice, quiet church that doesn't ask too much off me, and enjoy the rest of my life and wait for heaven. But that's not what this parable encourages us to do, is it? What are we supposed to do? The servant comes back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go quickly into the streets and alleys of the town, bring in the poor, bring in the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you've ordered has been done, but there's still more room. The master told his servant, go out into the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I don't know if you've ever been to a party that is poorly attended or you've ever hosted a party and nobody's come. It's awful. It's an awful position to be in. When you look around at the copious amounts of food that are left over and the empty seats sort of stare back at you as an identification of your lack of popularity or as, a, as an affirmation of your rejection, we get a little insight into the position and place of God in this parable. We get a little view of the character and the world of God. You see, the Bible says that the party is ready. Everything's been done. Everything is ready to go. I don't know if you've been having friends round, and when you're having friends round, all you can think about is getting the house ready, isn't it? You put, every, you put all your whole motivation into getting the house ready. You want, you, you're like, I need to check the downstairs toilets, it's clean, I need to put some pot puree out, I need to get the starters ready, you need to prepare everything. And then at that moment... When everything's ready, there's like a switch flicks in your head. And you look at your watch. And, and when you're preparing for people to come, all you can think about is, I hope they don't come now. I'll, I'll be so annoyed if they come now. I'll, I'll be really angry if they come now. And you, you're almost angry with them before they've even got there. And you're flying around the house. And then the moment that you're ready, the flick switches. And all you can think about is, oh, they're not here. You know, they're late. And you're immediately angry. And then all you can think about is why they're not here. And they're probably two minutes late. And all you're thinking about the whole time is, well, Blimey neck, they could have got here a bit quicker. And, and that, is, that is your whole focus. You're thinking about the people 
that are coming to the feast. We get a real picture of God, I think, in this story. Where is God? What is he doing? He sat there with the feast ready, looking round at the empty chairs, saying, come on. Now maybe we could take this parable and think of ourselves as the people on the lanes, people, the outcasts. We could think, right, this story is set in Judea. It's set 2,000 years ago. God's word spread out, and yet, and it's reached us, the outcasts in Castleford. It's even reached to us, and this is the kind of fulfillment of the parable. But just think about this. What are we now? I think, in a sense, this parable has come full circle. We are God's church. We are his people. This parable, yeah, this story has reached us, but now... What are we to do with this parable? This parable that tells people to go out into the highways and byways. I guess it doesn't tell you to start there. It tells you to start somewhere else. But if they won't come in, it says go out into the highways and the byways. How hard a message is this for Jewish ears to hear? As they've lived through their lives, separating themselves, making themselves holy and righteous for God. To now hear Jesus tell this parable and say, right, here's the truth of the message now. You're not accepting it. So this story is going to go out, and it's going to go out, and it's going to go out. And it's out on our door in 2016. What will we do with it? I think there's a real challenge. I think often we look with our evangelism to drag people to church who are like us. And that's probably not a bad tactic. That's probably not a bad way to go. But what do we do when they all reject the word? I think there's a real challenge for us in this parable. I think there's going to be a, a lot of people filling up our churches who we don't expect, who aren't the same as us, the same ethnicity, like the same music, share the same amount of money coming into their salary every week. I think God lays down a real challenge for us. God is sat waiting in his party, and he says in this text, I want this to be full. And if people are rejecting it and people aren't coming, go and grab somebody. Who will? I think it's a real message about what church should be like. When we sit with our Christian pipe and slippers on, as sometimes I want to do, the message to us is go and compel them to come in. We've made a bit of a mess of this word compel over the years. It's probably responsible for some really atrocious acts, actually, in terms of, in terms of forcing kingdom values onto people with war and with other things like this. But this word compel, this idea compel, I think stems from... This, this notion that we've got that we know that this feast is ready. We know that God loves the whole world. And in compelling people, we're really saying, come on, you need to see this love. This is amazing. We're not to force anybody, but we are to compel them to see God's love. Just to finish, I'm realizing as I look at this, I'm asking us to do stuff that's actually impossible and that I, I don't do. To be truly humble. It's one of those, one of those qualities in it. We can do it for a bit and then occasionally we're falsely humble and then occasionally we're just big-headed and we get it completely wrong altogether. To give without expecting anything in return. The, the clock that's going off in our minds, just, it just destroys us and we need a bit of glorification from it. To love the unlovable. We just can't keep that up forever. How do we do this? There is a way that we can do it. It's impossible on our own. But the, the message from the Bible is that in order to achieve this, basically we just look at Christ more. We stare at him more. We get more lost in his perfection. If we go out of our way and think that being a Christian is 
trying to be humble, trying, trying to be humble, trying to be kind, trying to love other people. We'll eventually come unstuck. We'll eventually mess it up. I think this passage tells us to, to look again at Christ. And I'm going to finish with this reading. I think, I think that would help us to do that. Philippians 2, verse 5 to 11. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.